Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody had a great Independence Day weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander who is now with the Hudson Institute think tank, where he is the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. He is also the co-author with his colleague, Dan Pat, of the recent report, Building a Team for Next Generation Air Dominance. He was also the moderator of a superb roundtable discussion available on YouTube, framing uh, next generation air dominance around software for operational advantage. Uh, that conversation included Dr. Tim Grayson, uh, a special assistant, or I should say the special assistant to Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, retired United States Air Force uh, General Mobile Holmes, the former commander of Air Combat Command, and of course, Dan Pat. Brian, uh, always a pleasure having you on. Hope you had a great weekend and thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. And yes, I hope you had a great weekend as well. Uh, we did. We did it indeed. We were exchanging texts uh, during during grilling, so uh, right. I think a good time was had by all. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Um, Brian, uh, NGAT is arguably a top priority for every leading uh, Air Force. Uh, the U.S. Air Force, uh, the program is manned and unmanned and is now in engineering and manufacturing development, suggesting the program is moving quickly. It is a top priority effort of the United States Navy, uh, even if the Navy is a lot more quiet about how it's going about it, in part because the Navy wants to do its own thing and doesn't like to do its own thing with anybody else. I don't mean that necessarily <laughs> as critically as that might sound. Uh, and then you have Britain, Sweden, Italy working the Tempest program. You have France, Germany, and Spain working SCAF. Obviously, our Chinese friends and indeed Russia uh, developing uh, their own systems on that. Your focus is the United States and arguing uh, that teaming is absolutely the critical element of this program, given the requirement that U.S. forces are going to have to command truly unprecedented amounts of air airspace. Uh, let's just get your sense. What does NGAD need to be, whether it's Air Force Blue or Navy Blue? Yeah, Bago, I'll say up at the up at the start here that um, I have not been briefed on the highly classified elements of NGAD, and I did that deliberately so that we could write this report uh, and offer recommendations without running afoul of, of classification considerations. Um, but with that stipulation, um, I would argue, uh, we, we argue in the report that NGAD really needs to be a team of systems and, and as opposed to a family of systems. And why that distinction is important is that a team, uh, just like we're familiar with football or baseball, is composed of a lot of individual elements that are all developed and trained and uh, operated separately from one another. They come up through some kind of system uh, independently uh, and they're assembled uh, on the playing field you know, to create a certain set of uh, operations or missions or effects. Um, so you know, as opposed to a family that grows up together and are designed to interoperate with, interoperate with each other and you know, generally are relatively close-knit um, and stay that way throughout their life cycle, a team comes, comes together and goes apart and comes together and goes apart. So it's recomposable. Um, you change it based on the needs of the situation. You might even change the entire uh, composition of the team if you need to, to, to you know, start a rebuilding year, if you will. So NGAD needs to be more like a team and less like a family. Uh, and that 
that team needs to be designed in order to retain the ability for U.S. Air Forces to be able to operate inside highly contested airspace uh, and deliver effects. Um, and given the fact that um, the ranges and sophistication of air defense systems continue to grow, um, that requires uh, relying to a greater degree on unmanned systems to carry out some of those tasks uh, because of the, the threat, uh, but also because the unmanned systems can give you the kind of you know, distribution and the kind of uh, span of, a, of, of a control or scope of effects that might be necessary to uh, be successful against a country like China, you know, that has a widely dispersed, widely networked, but very dense uh, set of air defense systems. Okay. But in fairness, right, un understand the whole family part uh, and understand the team part, but teaming uh, requires a lot of coordination. Um, you know, you're, you're talking uh, out of this, you know, from the same playbook uh, and right, sharing as much equipment and connectivity as you right. possibly can ultimately, right? In, right? in fairness, we are not able to do join all domain command and control right, uh, I would argue, um, even among ourselves, much less with our allies and partners. Um, none of what the United States Air Force is being done appears to be shared with the United States Navy. Um, and, and indeed, the United States is, is staying very apart from these allied programs as well, uh, where I would argue we, we need to have some sort of connection among these programs because we'll be fighting with our French allies, we'll be fighting with our British allies, uh, and and indeed, right, Sweden going to be part of Nor uh, NATO as well, right? So these are fully NATO uh, platforms. Uh, in 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 fairness, I did see Lieutenant General Crawl recently who who said, look, he has much uh, he's much more optimistic about where we're going to end up maybe than I am. How is it we need to connect so that the Air Force, uh, which is ahead of the Navy, and the Navy, eventually, whatever they produce is going to work, uh, uh, Brian? And then, indeed, how do we do this with our allies and partners to make sure that we have that connectivity now, right? I mean, we're relying on Link 16. Uh, we're trying to use the F-35 as the connectivity platform. Mm, okay. I mean, but we're going to a new generation of platform, right? I mean, and you see what happens, right? right? The F-22 yeah. was Air Force only. It only connects with the United States Air Force, right? It doesn't connect right. with anything else directly. Right, right. So that's a great point. So that gets to the main argument we make about JADC2, which is that JADC2 should, instead of trying to boil the ocean uh, and come up with a way to connect every sensor with every shooter through universal standards, should instead flip and, and focus on the bottom up and instead look at specific instantiations of groups of forces that need to be able to communicate for specific uh, tasks, for specific problems that have to be solved. And so we'd argue that NGAD is an example of that kind of problem set, You know, being able to uh, penetrate and operate inside of highly contested airspace. There's a collection of systems, US allied, um, joint that need to be able to work together to do that. And so what we need to focus on first is the software ecosystem and the C4I ecosystem, rather the C3 ecosystem, in which those uh, different uh, platforms and unmanned vehicles and their mission systems uh, are operating. So focus on that software ecosystem primarily uh, to be able to create that interoperability. And so how we create the interoperability is instead of relying on a set of uh, very fixed and limited um, subscription services like Link 16. Instead, shift to networking technologies that have a lot more flexibility like TTNT, which is already being widely proliferated throughout the US military. Um, and then use uh, software interoperability tool chains that allow you to translate data from one data format, such as 
CDL or Link 16 into another data format, such as that used by TTNT. So uh, what the Air Force is doing, for example, with Stitches, uh, which is a, a software tool chain that DARPA uh, led the development of, um, they're doing that exact thing. So they're building software toolkits that allow you to translate data from one format to another without having to have a gateway radio that you know, mechanically connects those two networks. Um, and by doing that through software, you're able to put that software on each of the participating players. They're able to then you know, communicate data between each other, even though they're using different uh, communication networks to do it. Uh, and then you have a software uh, environment that encompasses both them and the mission system, mission control systems that are building the plays and actually monitoring the execution of the play in real time. So um, a lot of this comes down to focusing on the software uh, instead of looking at the hardware as each individual systems. And that allows you to then you know, try to get interoperability rather than uh, focusing on building hardware and then working the interoperability later. How much evidence is there that that's the track that we're on, uh, Brian, in order to develop this? Because if you look at it, there should be enormous amounts in common between these two aircraft. They can share engines, they can send sensors, they can share radars, they can share comms gear, uh, they can share engines, they, they can indeed even share at the actuator uh, level or the wiring harness level, right? I mean, I think in this day and age, we should be doing everything to reduce our logistics and sustainability costs, uh, even though um, you know everybody likes to do things differently because they like to do things differently. So it's, I guess it's a two-part question. How much of what we're doing now puts us on the track that you say we need to be on to make sure that this thing is a success? And then the follow-up question to that is, what's the case to be made for as much commonality between these jets, whether one has a tail hook and the other one does not? Great question on, um, you know, are we on the track to achieve that sort of interoperability? So that the software kind of centric view of NGAD is, I would argue, the way that the Air Force has been pursuing the B-21. So if you talk to people working the B-21 program over at Northrop Grumman, for example, they'll say that, you know, we are you know, fundamentally starting with the software and the software is further along on this program than the hardware and that the software environment is going to be developed and that the hardware is going to operate within it. In a lot of ways, it's like what we see in the commercial world where you've got iOS, you've got uh, Android, and then you've got hardware that operates in that environment uh, and uses a series of uh, APIs to interact with the outside world within that software environment. Um, so there are a lot of ways I'm arguing that the same thing needs to be happening with NGAD, where we have this software environment that uh, has the mission system, the mission systems operate in, and then those mission systems live on some platform, and that that platform may be an unmanned vehicle that's part of the team of NGAD, or it could be on the manned platform that everybody focuses on for NGAD, uh, or it could be on some external um, non-NGAD-related unmanned vehicle or system such as Tempest. So the mission systems are what actually is con are connecting the different pieces of NGAD because it's not the airplane that talks to another airplane. It's actually a radio on the airplane that talks to another airplane, uh, or it's the radar on the airplane that's interacting with the environment. So the, the key is to get these mission systems to be able to talk to one another, and they do it via this software environment. And it's a lot like what we see in the commercial world. Um, and then when you look at you know, the idea of commonality, if we start focusing on you know, the mission systems and the software as being the main areas where the NGAD participants are actually interacting with one another. The hardware behind that you know, can be to some degree, as you said, common between different you know, elements. You know, the, the, you know, the Navy's version of the NGAD manned fighter can have a lot of commonality with the Air Force's manned NGAD fighter uh, because what, you know, what 
but fundamentally they have to do are the same mission, right? They have to do relatively long range, relatively um, stealthy. They have to be able to carry the mission systems necessary for them to operate in this highly contested area uh, and deliver effects. And they've got to carry weapons. So I think in a lot of ways that they, you could commodify the unmanned vehicles, um, the Skyborg, you know, the Golden Horde systems that are going to be the unmanned component of NGAD, those could be commoditized between the Army, or rather the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy. Uh, and then within the manned platform, you could see a lot of commonality um, between the two because of the, the fact that it's, it's really the mission systems and the software where the interoperability happens. Uh, and everything else past that can be somewhat uh, mix and match. You talked about weapons. Um, and if you, right, I mean, I think the J-20 concept from on the part of the Chinese is rather brilliant, right? I mean, we were looking at it as, you know, wow, it's, it's not that good of a dog. It's not designed to be, it's designed to take out command and control nodes, tankers, right? All of the things that allow us to actually be able to project air power, in which case you think that's pretty brilliant. But the ranges of these munitions also have to be tremendous, right? I mean, you know, the Phoenix was, you know, the thing in its day, and then you know, but AMRAM was shorter range. We looked at Meteor to be beyond, well beyond visual range in terms of giving us that range. What are the kind of effectors we need and what are the volumes in which we need it? You guys have a very interesting chart about what, what these engagement distances are going to be. And they're rather dramatic, right? Uh, right. Obviously, you can put those on, on, uh, on unmanned systems to get you out there forward and augment that capability. But at the end of the day, somebody still have to shoot somebody. Uh, whether with an energy beam or with a with a weapon, what what does the weapons portfolio need to look like? Uh, because as we're finding in Ukraine, you can deplete what looks to be a big arsenal pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and, so and I, then it, and if you have a small arsenal, you're really screwed quickly. <laughs> right, right, and so that's a that's a key question. And I think you know, I mean, Mark Gunzinger and I have done some work on this in the past. Um, but if you look at where the department's going, you've got really long range air to air missiles like the AIM 260, you know, the long range air to air missile that's a you know, bigger version of the you know, AIM, AIM 120. Um, so as you get that longer range, you're also getting bigger weapons that maybe you can't carry quite as many of and are going to be more expensive and probably less, uh, less inventory available. So the, you get the problem we're seeing in Ukraine where you run out of preferred munitions very quickly. And I think the um, but I think with the, the 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 way that NGAD might address that is that you look at sh shifting to a, a family of effectors or a team of effectors that are smaller and shorter range um, and maybe can be carried in larger volumes. Uh, and the way that you achieve that is by you know, putting them onto platforms that you're able to either risk in these highly contested environments, so like unmanned vehicles, like the Skyborg you know, uh, set of unmanned vehicles or Golden Horde. Um, uh, or you also, and then you also carry them on the manned platform, perhaps that you know is able to penetrate a little more more farther than uh, than your standard uh, manned platform might. So I think the the shift is actually going to be towards trying to um, rely on smaller effectors being delivered more closely to the target, um, which will rely on you being able to penetrate airspace using counter ISR capabilities that unmanned vehicles might have to carry, and that you're going to have to probably deliver that final blow, if you will with um, weapons that very or likely are carried by an unmanned vehicle that goes the final tactical you know, distance to, to then drop the bomb or to release the missile. So I think we're going to see a shift in effects to focus on this you know, set of shorter range weapons that carry out the volume attacks complemented with you know, a few of the longer range systems like the, P, like the AIM-260 to hit some of their strategic aircraft like 
um, you know, C, C4 ISR or C3 ISR aircraft, or uh, if there are very many you know, PLA tankers, tankers that are out there. So we're going to have to probably rely on a similar approach, looking at you know, our limited stock of these long range weapons going after strategic or high value aircraft, and then relying on most of our attacks, particularly our surface attacks being done by, um, you know, some of these shorter range weapons being carried by the, the NGAD family of, of unmanned vehicles. How much commonality should there be between these two jets? Oh, right, or the actually the families, family. right? I mean, whether yeah. you're manned or unmanned, there were all sorts of ways to put the same sort of or very similar unmanned capabilities to both of the forces as well, really, if you look at it. Um, yeah, yeah. So the team of the teams that are on the the, you know, the Navy side and the Air Force side, I think um, you know, could have uh, a lot of. There's going to be some similarity, but of course, the big limitation with the Navy is, um, you know, what's going to be able to launch off the carrier deck. And I think what the Navy's leaning towards is a manned, you know, aircraft that's going to be a replacement of the F-18 EF. Um, complemented by the MQ-25, which the Navy is already pursuing. And then you know, we would argue that the rest of that complement of unmanned vehicles are either going to be air-launched effects that are going to probably be carried by uh, the MQ-25, or they could be Skyborg-like rocket-assisted you know, takeoff systems that come from another ship or shore. You know, so you're going to have that from the Navy side, you're going to probably have to look at using aircraft coming coming off of the carrier deck, but also aircraft that come off of other ships or from shore as your NGAD you know, team of systems. So they're going to be coming together from multiple locations. Now, from the Air Force side, it may be very similar, actually, because you could envision a situation where the, you know, the NGAD team um, of the manned fighter platform, uh, along with the unmanned vehicles, are going to come from different locations because they might have different ranges. That, you know, that, that small uh, Golden Horde-type unmanned vehicle is going to be delivered by another aircraft. So that might be delivered by a, a B-21 or by a, you know, a, a you know, not maybe a B-52, those Golden Horde aircraft then make it in, you know, your, your Skyborg type larger unmanned vehicles might come from some other location via rocket assisted takeoff, you know, runway independent. And then your, your manned fighters might be coming from, you know, a third location. So I could, I could see in both situations, you're probably launching aircraft from multiple locations that would then, you know, combine to form a team as they go down range. Um, which means that in a lot of ways they could have you know similar complements of systems. I think you know except for the MQ25, um, yeah, I think they're going to be you know pursuing a similar team. Um, it's just going to be the basing and and you know, logistics arrangements for them are going to be slightly different. Uh, there is uh, considerable uh, speculation uh, on who is the winning NGAD contractor, right? I mean, once the announcement was made that the program is an EMD uh, in engineering and manufacturing development. Um, there obviously had to be a winner, and Air Force Secretary uh, Kendall, um, it prompted him to suggest that, you know, that, that it's not fair to say that they don't have a winner. He said that there will be competition, um, and one way to look at that is that the United States Air Force, for example, is uh, the prime contractor of the platform, right? There's an airframer, there's an unmanned provider. Um, they selected the power plant, right? A much more traditional acquisition model, in which case the United States Air Force is in the driver's seat uh, right. and makes those determinations. Hey, um, Northrop, you can deliver. Uh, I'm not busting on Northrop, right? But a prominent example of it is uh, uh, on uh, the F-35. Uh, the, you know, the DAS system was not working, and Raytheon ended up. Uh, you know, right. it was recompeted, and Raytheon ended up winning it. 
what, right. what do we know about where this program is, how it's functioning and how it can, because there are those who argue and, and uh, Richard Abelafia, I think on our weekend podcast um, a couple of weeks ago said, look, it's kind of an inefficient way of having two or multiple contractors here in the EMD phase of it. Um, yes. But I mean, I go back to what the secretary said and he said, you know, that there will be competition. It doesn't necessarily, right. It, it was right. an interesting way of answering the question anyway. What, what, do you, what do you make of that statement and how so, the Air Force is going about executing this from what you can tell? Right. And so if you look at um, our report, actually, the, the last graphic, and it describes you know, our proposed approach you know, for acquisition of NGAD, which um, takes the Air Force model, because right now NGAD is being pursued by the same PEO that um, manages the manned aircraft portfolio, including some you know, legacy or existing aircraft. Um, so that 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 one PEO is spread pretty thin, right? They're having to manage this NGAD program as well as a bunch of existing programs. Um, and then you've got you know, PEOs for weapons that own some unmanned systems. Uh, and then you've got another PEO that owns some other unmanned systems. So the, the PEO arrangement's a little bit, we think, you know, kind of not arranged properly to you know, get the synergy or get you know, the effort be concentrated on NGAD. But aside from that, um, we were arguing that um, under a under a new PEO NGAD, that the Air Force should separately um, organize system program offices or SPOs for the software environment, for the unmanned systems associated with NGAD, for the NGAD manned uh, fighter aircraft, um, and then for the, the weapons, which that could be the existing PEO weapons. Um, so we were arguing essentially this approach that the Air Force then becomes the integrator, or at least manages the integration um, between the different um, providers of software, uh, unmanned vehicles, weapons, and uh, the manned platform. Um, that seems to be where the Air Force is gravitating toward. And I think the experience they've had with B-21 helps support this argument that the Air Force can manage this integration process because the Air Force doesn't have to be the integrator per se, um, because just like in the commercial world, the Air Force can drive integration between the uh, providers of different systems by forcing them through integration gauntlets, by forcing them to undertake sprints with the software developer. You know, so the, the Air Force doesn't have to do the integration. The Air Force manages the integration that's being undertaken by the, the system program offices and their, their, their uh, vendors underneath them. Um, and that would be how a commercial company does it. They don't, they don't actually do the integration. They force the, the equipment providers to then integrate their systems and ensure they work together through a, a set of gauntlets that the uh, that the 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 vendor that the that the, the the customer sets up. So in this case, the customer, the Air Force, uh, would set up a series of, of right. integration gauntlets. And I think that that seems to me where the Air Force might be going, based on Kendall's remarks that say there's going to be competition, but doesn't you know imply that there's like multiple providers of the manned NGAD platform. I think the competition right. might reside in uh, the areas between these different uh, elements of the NGAD team. So that the, the team members of the, the manned platform, the, the software provider, the, um, the unmanned vehicles, those are all probably different vendors. And there might be multiple vendors for the software environment. Um, so you can get a great degree of competition. And then the Air Force would then manage that integration process by forcing them through integration gauntlets. Uh, and right, it, this all works well uh, if you have open architectures, right? So that right. Uh, you can, you act, I mean, I hate to use the term plug and play, but unplug somebody and plug somebody else in if you, if you need to make that change uh, as opposed and do it in a little bit of more of a federated way in a sense. Uh, that, right. That, 
but that's and that's where what what um, for example the uh, 350 is spectrum warfare wing um, that's been doing stitches. That's what what they're doing is so important because it's not it's open architecture in that you know things will have to be able to you know, theoretically work with one another. But a lot of cases, what what you do to make something work with something else is you build a software patch that allows it to communicate with something else. You know, so right. you um, you know in the commercial world you do these plug fests, right? So you say okay, everybody bring all your stuff and that's supposed to work with this piece of gear. We're gonna do we're gonna plug everything in to plug in everything else and see what works and what doesn't work. And we're going to have to build software patches for those things that didn't work. Um, that's a lot of what we're looking at here is that, you know, it's, yeah, it's open architecture, but instead of somehow defining from the top down, a very set of a set of very specific system requirements that you have to meet, you accept the fact that folks are going to come in with systems that don't exactly, you know, communicate in the right way or pass the data in the exact right framework. And that you're going to have to be able to make that integration happen and probably do it via software um, as opposed opposed to going back and, and you know revising the soft the the you know, operating environment of the of the constituent system. So you're going to do it by patching them together rather than by you know revising each of these individual subsystems and then bringing them back in. Um, that's how the you know commercial space does it. I think that's what, a lot of what we're looking at here. And that's why what the Air Force has been doing with the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing is so important. Uh, and uh, and again uh, why uh, hardware and software uh, security becomes even more important uh, than ever, right? I mean, I think we, right. we're, we're not as focused uh, on all of that and now recognizing that we have a, a whole series of vulnerabilities and getting more serious about it. And, and I know Secretary Kendall uh, and uh, the chief are, are very serious about it and I think get it. Um, you, uh, very quickly, I know we got about uh, four or three or three and a half, four minutes left. Um, talk to us a little bit about your trip to uh, Japan. Uh, it's good to get out and about to the Pacific. And I know uh, you met with Indo-PACOM and uh, the Navy and the Air Force and everybody else. Uh, what were some uh, key uh, takeaways from your trip to Japan? Uh, Brian, we've got about three and a half, four minutes left, and uh, you took your big trip to Japan, uh, which is uh, which is uh, terrific. Uh, it was certainly dif- difficult to visit Japan, so you you timed it perfectly to be able to get in there. A very consequential time for the U.S.-Japan alliance as it gets deeper, and both sides are actually trying to integrate as opposed to just sort of sit side by side with one another, or actually not even fully side by side with one another. At least the buildings are across the street now, so that's good. Um, right. Walk us through what the key takeaways from your trip were at this very, very important time when everybody is sort of standing up and recognizing uh, the challenge that, and from a Japanese perspective, not that just the Chinese uh, are, are bringing, but I think people have sometimes a tendency of forgetting that Russia is also a Pacific power. Correct. Uh, yeah, Vago, great, uh, great point. And I think, um, so I'd say one big takeaway from our trip was that discussions with both on the political side uh, and the Japanese government, as well as on the civilian and the, and the, the uniform side, all are gravitating towards the idea that Japan is going to substantially raise its defense budget. You know, they're talking about doubling it. It's currently about 1% of GDP, talking about doubling the defense budget to around 2, 2% of GDP. I don't know if they'll actually get to that level, but they will certainly be raising the defense budget substantially uh, in the next year. And they're doing right now their mid-ter- midterm defense program. Uh, they're doing the, the new national defense program guidance. You know, so they're doing their set of strategic doc- documents that they do every five years. So these are you know deliberations that are happening right now within the government. I expect there's going to be a, a significant increase in defense spending there uh, in the coming few years. I'd say another big takeaway is that um, they're looking around for new ways to address 
the China challenge, um, and they're realizing, you know, for example, that they can't rely on just uh, you know duking it out with with Japan with China and and uh, being able to win that confrontation. So they're looking at uh, being able to improve their ability to do ISR and targeting. They're looking at ways to use unmanned systems. They're looking at new approaches to try to get decision making advantage over China. I think they're looking at ways to try to uh, exploit uh, Japan's advantages. You know, so Japan has some advantages uh, relative to the United States when it comes to China. So Japan's closer, obviously. They have um, they have a geography that allows them to obviously hem in uh, China to an extent. Um, they could use the electromagnetic spectrum to a, a significant degree to try to thwart uh, Chinese ability to gain ISR and and to threaten U.S. allies beyond Japan. Um, so I think they're looking at some ways to try to exploit Japan's advantages as well as shore up its potential disadvantages um, with China. They seem to be um, much less concerned with Russia. I expected Russia to loom you know, much larger in the Japanese calculation, and there was actually very little discussion about Russia as a threat you know, to Japan, um, even though there's the occupation in the Northern Islands and the continued discussion of you know, the confrontation about the Kurils. That seemed to be very low priority compared to the the threat posed by China. Excellent point, and I think that might have something to do uh, with uh, Japan's uh, energy relationship with uh, with Russia that uh, they've been criticized for, uh, but but sticking to in the wake of decommissioning uh, their nuclear power plants. Right, I mean Germany having right. a very, very similar, good point. Uh, this is a very similar challenge. Uh, right. Brian, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. I commend to the audience to check out uh, not just the video if you want uh, a truly granular uh, and very thoughtful discussion. Uh, admirably granular uh, and thoughtful discussion with a lot of takeaways with uh, with Tim, with Mobile, with Dan, and with and with you, uh, and also to check out uh, the report as well. Brian, Thank always you very a much, pleasure. Brian. Thank you so much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.